Yes. Some are more interesting than others, and um, I thought tonight we would start, because I, I won't get down through all these, but um, lists of the significance of numbers, not the book of numbers, but actual numbers, like one, two, three, and so on, uh, as they're found in Scripture. And I want to look at that because uh, there's, there's really some, some significant things. When you come across a number in Scripture, particularly even the first mention of a number, um, that is associated with God or whatever you have you or, or his plan throughout scripture it often carries through with that same theme all the way through for instance and we'll look here as we start off the number one the number one is the primary number and it's signifying absolute singleness right it's one and you find in scripture how the Lord God is one and singularity uh, in, in associated with that. And I thought I would look at a few verses. Um, in the first time we really understand this, apart from, I mean, certainly in the book of Genesis, he reveals himself early on, but later on when Moses comes along, and remember Moses is coming out of a polytheistic culture, um, the meaning many gods out of the Egyptian culture. Uh, he doesn't necessarily follow the Egyptian gods, that's for sure, but he would have been greatly influenced in his day about you know everything about their religion uh, and their followings and all that. They had gods for everything. And when he comes out, and of course, is 40 years in the wilderness experience, and then has the burning bush experience where God reveals himself to him, calls him to go back to lead his people out of slavery. And Moses asks, whom shall I say has sent me? And God reveals who he is, what he's like, he's the all-existent one, right? The I am, he's the Lord. We get that word Jehovah, Yahweh from there. And then you come to chapter 4 of Exodus. And remember, Moses was worried about going back there. You know, suppose they won't listen to me. Or, you know, I, I go and tell them about this God. And you can imagine in Moses' mind, the Egyptians have all kinds of gods. Who do I tell them uh, is sending me? And, of course, that's all part of this uh, this revelation that was given to him so it says here the lord and that's singular yahweh said to moses reach out your hand and take it by the tail and he reached out his hand he caught it and it became a rod in his hand remember the serpent the rod went down and he picks it up and then he says that they may believe that the lord god and this is very significant because he uses that term as a title uh to describe who god is now he says Yahweh, and then God, Elohim. Now, Yahweh is very, very specific. It, it is the creator God, singular, and it's a singular word. Now, God, Elohim, that could be a plural word. Um, it depended on the context here, uh, but it was sort of the generic word for God or gods. And if you, Moses had gone right back and said to the Egyptian, I have a God for you, they would have said, you know, okay, and let's listen about your God. And then if they accepted that God, they would have just added that God into their pantheon of gods. But here God reveals himself as the singular one God. And it becomes clearer throughout scripture. He even identifies him as the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob who has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And uh, you know that sign that was going to be taken, first it was confirmed to Moses. But again, the one true God who was powerful over all things. 
You come to the book of Deuteronomy, also written by Moses, and you have here uh, a verse of singularity. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, singular, our God, the Lord is one. And that follows through scripture as the number one, as a singularity of purpose, and especially associated with God and a singularity of person in that. You come to the New Testament, and um, you have God revealed. And again, throughout scripture, you have a triune God who is... In other words, three distinct persons in one divine essence. That's sort of the real basic definition of the Trinity. And the word Trinity is a descriptive term. It's not a biblical term necessarily, but it's, it's found in the Bible in the sense of what it's, how God reveals himself and the fa- through the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you'd also have to say if God is one, then we also have to have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one. And there are verses that show us that. For instance, Matthew 23, 9. Here you have Jesus says, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. There is but one father. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and my father are one. Again, singularity. You come to... 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. What does it say here? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. By the way, very important verses. In, in Practically in my life, when I was a brand new, I wasn't even a Christian yet. I think I was right in that phase right before I, I understood fully and I got saved. But because it was, it was in the weeks preceding, uh, the date that I say I, I got saved when I understood. It really made sense. But I was reading through a Bible uh, that I had received in confirmation classes, and I was reading through the book of Matthew in particular, and I came to that verse in Matthew where it says, uh, Call no man your father, right? Uh, on earth. Uh, for there's one, for one is your father who is in heaven. And I remember going and asking my priest and I said I said why do we call you father the bible says we said we shouldn't do that and he said something you know that tried to make sense of it and it didn't make sense to me because I thought well the bible you gave me says this you know and I I all of a sudden it started dawning on me that there was something different here you know and honestly I think it's this and I uh, I respectfully say that because I sort of understand some of that you know reasoning behind it but the, I, I say this, that man always wants to take what is rightfully God's. And that's in all of us, by the way. And that is that sinful nature. And I think when we confuse who God the Father is, truly, and we may be identified only with a man or something like that, uh, him with a man, it, we've lessened who God is, you know, in that. Anyways, I don't want to get on that too much. but And then... The other verse that stood out to me uh, when I was reading through Timothy and I came across that and I said, one mediator, well, why do we pray to this one and that one and, you know, Mary and everybody else and we can go and just pray to Jesus. And it didn't make sense to me that the Bible would say that and yet that we were in practice doing something else. And it finally made sense eventually when I said, you know, I need to follow what the Bible says. And I'm thankful for that Bible that was given for me, given to me. 
um, in that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it says there is one body and one spirit. And there's one spirit. How about that? The Holy Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. How about that? The singularity of God as it's seen in the number one. Uh, let's go to the number two. And there's more verses with this one, but the number two is the number of witness and support. And you see that throughout Scripture, um, pairs of things that are a witness or they support something else. And we'll look at a few of them. The first mention of the number two is in Genesis 1.16. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So he makes two things that shine in the heavens. And they're there for us, right? Um, and they're a witness of his creation. Two witnesses of creation. You have two angels that came at the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19.1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, we know that they're involved in that deliverance of Lot and the judgment that is God's judgment on that, that area. Um, angels, two of them. Exodus 25.22. Remember the Ark of the Covenant. And above the mercy seat were two cherubim, it says here. There I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony. And God had his glory associated with that, that ark. Um, God was never contained in it or it didn't have some you know, magical f- connection to God in that way. It was a testimony of who God was and everything in that the design of the ark and the mercy seat itself where blood was sprinkled. Uh, It was there that a sacrifice was killed, blood applied, and the atoning work of God was seen. It's a testimony. And two angels uh, that were um, figures of angels were the witness of that. And I think it pictured also what was witnessing in heaven, you know, in that. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. Two tablets, right? And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Two witnesses of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Two witnesses to establish truth. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. By the way, that's the basis of law in Western civilization to this date. Um, it's very hard to convict someone based only on singular testimony. Now, you might have forensic evidence that is a witness also and those kind of things, and you might, only, you might not have any you know, human witness but it's not done just based on 
like one piece of evidence. Very rarely does somebody get convicted on that. I'm sure there's evidence of it somewhere, but that part of our law, especially in the testimony of witnesses, uh, needs to have establishment of the validity of that witness because the value of the individual, including the criminal, all right, is is something that God held in high regard so that that individual still had rights and his testimony was worth something. If he said no and the other said yes, it, it just cancels each other out in that way, um, sort of. And Anyways, obviously there's, there is truth apart from people lying and all that stuff. But anyways, the testimony of witnesses in a court in that way. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, we see that because it says... They found none, no witnesses against him or, or anything wrong. This is of Jesus. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And now that was important because Jesus could not have been convicted um, of a capital punishment, which the Jews couldn't execute anyways. The Romans had, had that authority. But he was being tried before the Sanhedrin. And he had to have two witnesses because the law said so. And they found two false witnesses. Travesty of justice. There are a lot of other pairs of witnesses. Numbers chapter 14, verse 6. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. Why? Because those two witnesses testified that, that they could do it. They could enter into the land. Ten said no, two said yes. The testimony of truth borne out by Caleb and Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, or 2, verse 1, that is. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. And those two men go out, and they come back with a report. Again, two witnesses. So you have the validity of their report, you know, is, is borne up by that fact of two witnesses. Um, Ecclesiastes 4.9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Twos. Two is better than one. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Here he is sending out witnesses, two by two. Uh, again, you see that. Luke 24, 4. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, it's the empty tomb, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Those two men were angels. And they were witnessing to the resurrection. And God uses two angels, not just one. Acts chapter 1, verse 10, same thing, the ascension of Christ. And while they looked steadfast toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Again, two angels. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The two immutable things of God that witness to his credibility as well in that unchanging things. 
Um, and then in Revelation 11.3, he says, I will give power to my two witnesses. And we have witnesses that will be there um, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And those two tribulational witnesses that are there. Uh, and again, you see the pairs of uh, how God uses that throughout Scripture. Does that make sense so far? All that. All right. I'm moving along. I'm moving along faster than I thought I would. But number three is another one. Uh, three, the number of unity of accomplishment and of the universe. Uh, so the number three, very important number. And the first kind of triplet that you see in Scripture, um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 10. Noah and his descendants, right? How many sons does he have? Three. The entire human race comes out of three sons in that. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the trace of the human race going back to three. Three was it was seen in the days of, um, and remember, of accomplishment, or sometimes I have said this too, that three can symbolize a place where uh, it is a place where you have to come to, well, the place of death also. You think about, um, and we'll look at it here, but you know, Jesus died and on the third day he rose again. But Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, God says, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And that's how Joshua conveys God's message to the people. And they were to stand there at the stormy banks of Jordan for three days. And in those three days, they were to... Well, get right with God, because they were getting ready to step into that overflowing river, you know. And uh, I think three is important there, the place of unity. There were three feasts a year that the Jews were required to attend. Exodus twenty three fourteen, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. And then in verse 17, he says, Three times in the year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. And they were to do that, those three feasts. Um, Let's see here. Gideon's mighty victory. That's another one. Judges chapter 7. When the 300 blew the trumpets. Now, the... In, in those ancient times, even up to modern days, a company of soldiers is about a hundred, just give or take on, on certain things. But you have, in ancient times, you have three um, bands of army, so of soldiers that God uses, and he was going to use those three to defeat a much greater enemy in that. As Judges chapter 7, verse 22. Ezra chapter 10, verse 9. Three days of preparation for a revival in Ezra's time. And you see here, So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. 
It was the ninth month and the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. And you have the account of the revival that breaks out um, under Ezra's ministry and the reading of the word. It was really God's ministry and the hearing of the word. And it was a three-day preparation for that. I think that's maybe something to that, isn't it? Sometimes we need to stop and take three days off and just get our hearts right before God in that. You see that also in Nehemiah's time. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And in the three days that he's at Jerusalem, what does he see? He sees the destruction of the walls and he sees the condition of, of Jerusalem uh, in those days and then begins to build uh, or get a plan to build at that point. And I think, again, sometimes we need to stop. We're in a world where we're just racing ahead, racing ahead, one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Stop and take a few days. And the biblical pattern is a, a pattern of three. We see that with Esther. Chapter 4, verse 16. Esther's heart was prepared for three days before meeting with the king. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther was preparing... Uh, for a very, well, she was preparing possibly for the end of her life. But she had a greater mission. She was being called to save her people uh, from the hand of the enemy and was going to go before the king, even though it was illegal to do so. And she prepares her hearts and has her maids prepare their hearts as well before the king. You have Jonah. Uh, oh, I threw this one in. Uh, the threefold cord, right? In that we read earlier a verse there about two together. Well, it builds on that. Verse 12 says, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And that's a beautiful verse because it basically says that, that three is better than two, and two is better than one. And when you come down to that um, one may be overpowered by another adversary. Two, you stand a lot better chance. And then I've often said the threefold cord, a man or somebody, you know, um, partnered up with God also, that third part of that cord, man, we are more than conquerors. Let's go. Uh, and, And often that passage is quoted in wedding ceremonies and other things to remind us that, Husband and wife coming together, that's two. But it's, it works even better if the Lord is the center of that relationship. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken, is it? You have Jonah. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Again, very interesting. You'd find them standing at the banks of the Jordan. Um, you have preparing for receiving of the Word of God. And Esther, who was in a place where it was really a place her life was in the bounce. And, and there was always these three days. And then Jonah. 
Jonah ends up in the whale's belly for three days and three nights. I think they're a place uh, of certain death. And by the way, Jesus would say later on that no sign would be given except the sign of Jonah, which was the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth three days uh, and three nights. And when you look at that, Jesus, and again, this is a, a number of completion too. Um, and John 2.19 can be coupled with Jonah 1.17, but it, it says in, Jonah, in John 2.19, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we know in the context of that, he's talking about the temple of his body. And again, after three days he would do that. And then in Luke chapter 13, verse 7, his earthly ministry was three years. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? And again, Jesus is in his third year of ministry. He's getting ready to go to the cross on that third year. Um, And... Uh, I like that. That's, you know, three years of walking and uh, for his disciples, um, three years of being with Jesus. And I think it's important to spend some time with Jesus and spend some time ministering in those things. And let me look at... Oh, and then there's other threes that come along. You have the, the triune God, right? Uh, when you talk about the Great Commission of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The commissioning uh, and the gospel going out to the nations in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those three are one. And you have other threes that are seen. I don't have all these verses in there, but uh, the tabernacle had, the, and the temple later, had the outer court, the inner court, and the holy of holies. And each one was significant in how people, well, drew to the place of God, but really it was places of exclusion, right? Um, you had certain people who could not enter past for instance in the the temple mount area um, thinking more of that one there you ended up with the outer court which was available for the jews to go and to be there in that outer court and then there was the inner court which was reserved just for the levites the priests and then the inner or the the holy of holies which was only for the high priest to go in and minister and each stage of the way was really God saying, stay out, stay out, stay out. As far as sinful man, you're separated from me. Later, when Jesus would die on the cross and that veil was torn in the temple, it was the entrance into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus and through his vicarious death. Um, and when Paul talks about the middle wall of partition in Ephesians, He's referring to, I think, that same idea of that middle wall of partition which is taken away in Christ. Jews, Gentiles don't need to be separated anymore. We're all part of one entity, the church. 
And then uh, there are three offices of Christ. What, what are those three offices? He's what? A prophet, a priest, and a king. Three things that he holds office to. And then there's three aspects of salvation. Uh, what would those three aspects of salvation be? Um, I'm going to throw that out for a question. So you are something by faith. You are justification, right? Justified by faith. Sanctification and glorification. That's all part of your salvation. Three things uh, in that. And so a whole bunch of different different things with that. Um, I have four. I'll, I'll just, I didn't put these verses in, but I, can, I have time to do one more number here. And the number four, if you are interested in that one. Uh, there are four seasons, right? Unless you live in Madawaska and there's only like really one. But anyways, one, one and a half, <laughs> something like that. But there's summer, winter, and fall and spring, right? Um, there's four great earthly kingdoms in the book of Daniel. Remember, he had that vision and, and interpretation of it. The four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other, and each represented a kingdom that would arise. And someday there will be a revived Roman Empire uh, in those last days. Um, and, and that's that final one, the kingdoms that are there. There are four kinds of spiritual soil. Right? Matthew chapter 13. Look at that one. And in Matthew 13, you have these, uh, the sower and the, and, the, and the soils. Verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him. And he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying... Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he goes on to explain about the soils and how they represent the heart, right? And the soil of God's word and it, as it, that seed is being sown in different parts of, well, humanity, really, in that way. So you have the four... Um, kinds of spiritual soil. Uh, Revelation chapter 6. Look at that one. Revelation chapter 6, you have four horsemen. And in uh, verse 6, it says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass, and um, let me see here. Where am I? I'm in. Sorry, I'm in the wrong ch- chapter. I was in Re- Revelation four. I'm in Revelation six. And you have here. Uh, where are we? 
we? Okay, verse 1. Now I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And he opened the second seal, and I heard um, the second living creature saying, Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and the people should kill one another. And it was given to him a great sword. And then a third one. It says, the third seal. Um, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. And so you have uh, the, the first one you know, being the horse of war and the second one being a horse of famine. And then here you have a third one. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed him, the grave followed him, and power was given to them over a fourth of earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and by the beasts of the earth. You have that horse of death. And then uh, number five, uh, the fifth seal, but it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had and I cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? And uh, we know that, again, um, the martyrs will cry out during that time as well for vengeance in those things. But anyways, you see those four horsemen that are mentioned as well. And uh, what other four things? Four earthly ministries of Christ seen in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew writes to the Jew. Mark as the servant, and uh, by the way, Matthew describes him as a king, and his primary audience is to the Jew. Mark as a servant, and his primarily writing to the Roman and Greek mind. Um, and then Luke, as the perfect man, shows us that. That's another ministry or as aspect of Christ. And then John as the mighty God. And so you see those couplets or those fours that are mentioned there in that. All right, well, that's enough for tonight. Next time, we'll pick it up and look at five and beyond, right? We'll get down to 70 eventually. How about that? But uh, it'll go a little quicker. Lord, we are grateful for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the perfection of it and the reasoning behind it and the logic of it. All of that, Lord, we just thank you. And um, for the blessing it is that we have one God one Savior, one Spirit, one body. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm.